Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today, we're covering sections 98 through 101, and there's so much information in these sections that I know we're going to just touch on some of the highlights, but I do want to start with some of the conclusions that I saw kind of emerge from these messages in these sections. The first one is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for sissies. And brothers and sisters, that's just the truth. The way is simple, but the way is not easy. It requires everything. And the Lord has made that clear, that we need to put it all on the altar. We need to want nothing more than we want exaltation in his kingdom. And that is a price that so many people are not willing to pay. I hope that we are willing to pay it. It's it's not an easy price, but there, the rewards are incredible. Our Heavenly Father offers us everything he has. And as Neil Maxwell once said, There isn't any more than that. It is everything. It's all power. It's all knowledge. It's it's the goodness of truth. And it does require a price. Now, our price, of course, as we know, is a tiny price next to the price that Christ paid for us. So after all we can do, we still need that grace of Christ. And then we can be saved in the kingdom of God. What an amazing opportunity the Lord gives to each one of his children as I said before, this is a lonely road. And and I used to tell my kids that, you know, if you're on a crowded street, turn around because you're almost certainly going the wrong way. It's a lonely road. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. Few there be that find it. And when we find companions along that road, it's precious, isn't it? To find like-minded people who are similarly focused on the kingdom of God. What a blessing that is. And they're not going to be sissies either. <laughs> so let's gear up. The second message that I think is really coming out of these verses is that the Lord wants us to be non-victim Christians. And this is a phrase that I came up with several years ago when I was trying to explain to my clients this balance of, of position that the Lord invites us to do, meaning that he doesn't want us to be chronic victims. He wants us to be agents, or as Father Lehi said in 2 Nephi 2, he wants us to act and not to be acted upon. And that's such an important idea. That, that we become agents unto ourselves, not chronic victims. Now, anybody can get victimized. Anybody can get victimized, right? You can get mugged, and it's not your fault. It's always going to be the mugger's fault. Nobody has any business mugging anybody. Sometimes we get hurt by other people's bad choices, sinful behavior, whatever. So we can be hurt, and we can be victimized in that way, But that's not the same as chronic victimization. So what I say is like, you know, this isn't about blaming the victim. But, you know, while if we get mugged, it's not our fault. It's the mugger's fault. If we're getting mugged every day, we're walking down the wrong streets. And we should do something about that. It's not God's will that we keep walking down these same streets and get continuously victimized. So God wants us to become agents, to go from victim to agent. I actually have a chapter on that in my book, Choosing Glory, going from victim to agent. And then some of the things that I learned in that chapter are coming right from these sections, section 98 particularly. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Also, of course, is the message that we hear again and again that the Lord and his people Zion will triumph. So no matter what trials and tribulations we go through, they're temporary. There will be the triumph of our Heavenly Father and and through his Son, Jesus Christ, with his people Zion in the right day, in the day of harvest, the day that the promises are fulfilled. So let's go back and start looking at section 98. I'm just going to start at the very beginning here and read these first three verses. Verily I say unto you, my friends, fear not, 
Let your hearts be comforted, yea, rejoice evermore, and in everything give thanks. Waiting patiently on the Lord for your prayers have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath, and are recorded with this seal and testament. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. Notice the strong language, the word choice here, that these prayers have entered the ears of the Lord of Sabbath and are recorded with this seal and testament. Those are strong words. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. There's a powerful message here. Therefore, verse 3, he giveth this promise unto you with an immutable covenant. Again, really strong words, immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled and all things, here's, here's the point, all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. There it is. He's saying whatever afflictions, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, they're going to work together for your good if you are my people. If you have covenanted with me and you keep your covenants, I guarantee it's a happy ending. I guarantee it with a seal and a covenant, a testament. It's been sworn. It's been sealed. It's been testified. It will be fulfilled. Those are words to remember in our times of the valley of the shadow, when things are hard, when things aren't going so well. We review these words. We keep them close in our hearts, I hope, and know that the Lord has made promises and he keeps his promises. He is a God of truth. He cannot lie. He does not lie. So what a great promise. Of course, we've heard similar words in section 90, verse 24. Those words have been precious to me in my life about, again, search diligently, pray always, and be believing. All things shall work together for thy good. A similar promise, but here the Lord is talking specifically about affliction, that affliction can be consecrated for our good. I hold on to that promise. I hope you do too. Jumping to verse 14 now. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies, for I have decreed, again, that strong word, I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy. Okay, he's not pulling any punches. This is where the Lord is making it clear. I never said it was easy, right? I mean, this, I'm going to prove you in all things. This reminds me of sometimes where, you know, back when the kids were young and we were going to sacrament meeting or listening to conference and we'd hear some really faith-promoting stories about people who maybe hadn't been paying their tithing or maybe they're new members and they're just learning about these things. Anyway, they'd have these tough choices about do I pay the rent or do I pay tithing or do I pay tuition or do I pay tithing? And in a great act of faith, they would decide to pay their tithing. And then, you know how these stories go, you know, a check came in the mail or a generous relative or neighbor, you know, came through with some kind of wonderful gift and they were able to cover their expenses as well as pay their tithing. And it was a great act of faith that they had done and it was rewarded with this wonderful blessing and miracle. And those are great stories. And I know they're true because the Lord does, you know, show mercy unto those who exercise their faith. And he gives us a witness, especially when we're early in the process of learning the commandments and learning to obey those commandments. The Lord is generous. And so he's like, hey, if you're making an effort to obey this, I'm going to give you a witness that it's true. And he talks about that in Ether 12, right? The witness comes after the trial of your faith. And the trial of our faith is always behaving in that obedient way, even if we can't see how it's going to work out in the end. So these stories are a great example of that. But... After church, I would talk to my kids or after conference or whatever, and I'd say, okay, now let's just, you know, say how wonderful that story is, but let's also not forget that that's just the beginning of the road, because now that the Lord knows that we have a witness of this principle, the Lord is going to stretch us. 
in that knowledge. And that's what he's saying in verse 14. I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant. Now, abide means stay in my covenant. You'll, you'll keep being in my covenant. So, you know, we've all entered into the covenant if we're members of the church. And yet, are we going to stay in our covenants? Are we going to keep being obedient no matter what happens to us? So, as I would tell the kids, well, so sometimes then what happens is God wants to see if you can pay your tithing with one hand tied behind your back. Or maybe both hands tied behind your back. Maybe hopping, barefoot, on tacks, in a snowstorm, blindfolded, with people spitting on you. Oh, there's a tithe payer. So in other words, you know, I was trying to tell them that, you know, it's great to pay your tithing and get a miracle with a check in the mail, but sometimes, you know, you have to show the Lord that you're willing to be a tithe payer when all you get in the mail are bills. But you continue to pay your tithing because you abide in the covenant. I abide in the covenant. Even when things are hard, that's what gives us a chance to grow into this place where the Lord can ultimately give us all that he has. So he's going to stretch us. It's not enough to have remedial obedience. He wants us to have post-doctorate, you know, belief and, and witness and strength and commitment to these commandments. And we can do it. We can do it. Line upon line, precept upon precept, but just always defaulting back to like the Lord has told us how to live and that's how I'm going to live trusting in the promises that are so profound. Of course, he talks about even unto death. Most of us are not required to go that far. Sometimes, you know, we we know of, of great martyrs of the past, Abinadi, the early Christian apostles who died martyrs' deaths, Joseph Smith, who died a martyr's death. There are others, of course, that have been killed by by unbelievers when they were testifying of the truth. And what a great example that is to all of us. Although what the Lord really wants of us each day is that we not just are willing to die for the gospel, that we're willing to live for the gospel. I think I told this story before, but it's applicable here too. It's, you know, the swearing apostle, Jay Golden Kimball, who was really in the 70, but was known for his colorful language, who would say to people sometimes in state conferences, how many of you would die for the church? And you remember this story, right? You know, most every hand would go up and then he would say, well, how many of you are paying a full tithing? And most of the hands would go down. And so, you know, his response or summary was, uh, that's the trouble with you blankety blank Mormons. You'd rather die than pay your tithing. So I apologize if that's a repeat, but it's a, it's relevant to this point. So let's go on. He's going to tell us here. Now, this is a really precious section to me. Section 98 is very precious to me. There is such a gem starting in verse 23, and he's going to tell us how to deal with persecution. Now, he's talking on a macro scale to the saints in Missouri who are experiencing tremendous persecution. We talked a little about that last week, but I read further this week that there were up to 200 homes that were burned by the Missourians who were trying to get the saints to leave. And there were a lot of assaults. There was a lot of loss and personal injury that happened in that time because the the Missourians were so intent on evicting the saints. And this was a sacred place. They had already dedicated the temple lot. They had started to to move here in mass. There were many members of the church that were coming in from the east to settle here in Jackson County, where Adam on Diamond is, where the Garden of Eden is, where, you know, one of the two capitals from which Christ will reign during the millennium, Jerusalem and the New Jerusalem in Jackson County, Missouri. So, you know, they thought this was home, and it was a home where they could continue to build and grow and and develop Zion so that they could be there when the Lord came, but that was not to be. And so, 
it was hard for them to to deal with this and they didn't know exactly what to do. Well, as we said, W.W. Phelps was writing letters to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was getting revelations about how to deal with persecution. And this becomes so incredibly precious because it doesn't just apply to that macro scale when there are mobs or enemies or, you know, armies that are combining to, to come against good people, but also to us as individuals when we are being chronically victimized. And again, the issue here is chronic victimization. As we said, anybody can get mugged, and sometimes we do get hurt or somebody cheats us in a business deal or whatever. But I'm talking about relationships that are chronic, where the injury repeats again and again and again from the same source. That's a chronic abuse situation or chronic injury. And the Lord doesn't want us to be victims, not chronic victims. Now, why is that? Well, what would the Lord do in the kingdom with a bunch of victims? I mean, people who are just used to being hurt all the time. It's like we lie down on the road and let the steamroller run over us every day. That's not the kind of person who's going to end up being much of an asset in Zion. We need to be people of power, not aggressive. And that's why we talk about this non-victim Christian idea. One simple way to define the non-victim Christian is that they don't dish it out because they care too much about their relationship with God. But they don't take it either. In other words, they don't accept a position of chronic victimization. Now, let's kind of look what the Lord says about that, because it's pretty wonderful and powerful stuff. Section 98, verse 23. This is where it starts and pretty much goes to the end of the chapter. Now, I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. Now, that's pretty familiar territory, right? Turn the other cheek. In other words, the Lord doesn't want us to be reactive or retaliatory. We're not supposed to be quick off the trigger and have a short fuse. And the next verse makes that really clear. This was a great parenting scripture for me. I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 24, but if ye bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. So I used to use this with my kids. And I would say, you see what the Lord is saying? The Lord is saying, if somebody hits you and you hit him right back, there's not that much difference between the two of you and you're both going to hell. So the Lord's not, not very impressed if, even if we didn't start the fight, but we jump into the fight in a heartbeat. That's not God's way. He wants us to have better mastery over the natural man. We're not supposed to be, you know, that quick to incitement. You know, that becomes that famous phrase from Fitter on the Roof, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, then the whole world is blind and toothless. If we're so quick to try to get revenge or our own brand of quote-unquote justice, that's not God's way. So we need to not be, you know, quick to strike back. or And that could be physically, of course, but it also could be a business move or it could be verbal. And of course, many of the relationships in which we are chronically hurt are close relationships, right? I mean, it could be a business relationship. It could be with an employer or an employee or a neighbor. But the vast majority of the relationships that become chronically hurtful or injurious or abusive are family relationships, right? Could be with parents, could be with siblings, could be with our children, could be with a spouse, often with a spouse, let's face it. So sadly, Those are relationships where it can be chronic injury. And even then, the Lord is saying, I don't want you to just strike back. You know, somebody says something rude to you or unkind or hurtful or does something that betrays you. Don't just strike back. That's not my way. That ends up just, you know, God saying you're even. Leave me out of it. 
Now, of course, I told my children, you come to me and I'll make sure that you're safe. So if somebody hurts you, I don't want you to just suck it up. I want you to come to me because it's my responsibility as your parent, as the steward over my children, one of the stewards with my with my partner to be over these children to make you safe. And I will. And if that's coming from a sibling, you know, we'll talk about it and we'll make sure that doesn't happen continuously. But that's that's the issue here is repair the relationship and get us into the place that we're supposed to go and supposed to grow together as a couple that are improving and approaching Christ together. Now, that doesn't always happen. And we have, sadly, too many marriages where somebody is being really hurtful. Now, I'm going to mention back to Section 88, where we talked about those three realms and the laws of the different realms. And this really applies here when it comes to marriage, because There are terrestrial problems in life where we have a partner who maybe sleeps too long or watches too many sports or doesn't clean the house or is pretty disorganized. But those are terrestrial problems. As irritating as they might be, they're not celestial problems. Telestial problems are addictions, infidelity, lying, miserliness with money, you know, intense selfishness. I'm not talking about our little personal you know, selfishness that we need to grow out of as soon as we can, but where we let that selfishness grow into where, you know, we're taking advantage of our partner. Actually, all selfishness needs to be rooted out. Let's just say it. President Kimball was really clear about that, that all issues in marriage seem to stem from selfishness, and I am not going to disagree with that. So we've got to be careful about rooting out our selfishness. Nevertheless, we're talking about a difference between terrestrial imperfection and celestial destructive behavior. And if it's terrestrial behavior on our partner's part that we don't love and it can be a little annoying, you know what? We need to be patient and long-suffering and kind because those things are not deal breakers. But the celestial sins are deal breakers. They are deal breakers. Now, this is what President James Faust said about divorce many years ago, and of course he had prayed and fasted about this because it was such a serious topic. But he said something very close to this. If it's not word for word, it's very close. He said that in his opinion, just cause for divorce would be nothing less than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship which is destructive of a person's human dignity. Those are the celestial destructive behaviors we're talking about. Abuse infidelity, miserliness, you know, destructive behaviors, addictions. And if the person won't take responsibility for those things, if they won't use appropriate resources to repent and change in humility, then those can be deal breakers. Again, checking with God always to see what his will is. But the Lord doesn't want us to be chronic victims. It's not good for our children to see us be chronic victims. It's not good for our children to see one of their parents be a chronic victimizer. That's not good for our children either. Too often in a family like that, where one partner is chronically victimizing and the other one is chronically the victim, children grow up with those two options. And some of them become victimizers because they can't stand the thought of being so hurt all the time. And half of them grow up to be victims because they think that's the only way to, to do what Jesus wants is to just keep taking it. But remember, he wants us to act and not to be acted upon. He wants non-victim Christians. That's what Section 98 is all about. Can't wait to get into that extra content where we're going to even give more examples and more solutions to those kinds of situations that can help. 
he goes on on the next page to say in verse 33, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients that they should not go into battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. Again, we're going to the spirit to find out what he wants. But in the verse before, he says, this is the law I gave unto Nephi, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and all mine ancient prophets and apostles. In other words, this is eternal stuff. It's not just for the saints being persecuted in Missouri. This is an eternal principle. Don't be guilty of the first offense. Don't be guilty of the second or the third. But if that continues with the authorization of the Lord, you need to do something to defend yourself so you're not chronically victimized. Pretty powerful stuff. And he says, you know, we forgive. This is verses 41 and 42 and 43. You know, if someone trespasses against us and doesn't repent, we still need to forgive. We forgive the second time. We forgive the third time. But interestingly, here in verse 44, but if he trespass against thee the fourth time, Thou shalt not forgive him, but shall bring these testimonies before the Lord, and they shall not be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. Okay, let's look at this for a minute. Obviously, the Lord doesn't want us to go around carrying a grudge or with bitterness in our heart or anger or vengeance towards somebody else. So when he says don't forgive, what he means is stop interacting. Like you can't just keep putting your hand on a hot stove and be surprised when you get you know, burn. So he's saying, don't, don't keep doing the same thing again and again with the same person. Don't be acted upon. You need to take action at this point. It's been three times. And here is the fourth time you need to take action, not action to destroy the other person, not action to turn us into the same kind of telestial, unharnessed, natural man as the other person who's hurting us. But to rise above that and say, I've got to take responsibility for being safe. And of course, if we have minor children, whatever safety plan we come up with has to include them as well. Because we have a stewardship that includes keeping our children safe from abuse or chronic injury. So what he's saying, though, is that, look, if, if you're going to continue to interact with this person, they need to fully repent and reward thee fourfold. Now, how does someone reward someone fourfold for infidelity or for breaking their trust or damaging the love? Or, or treating someone in an abusive way. Well, I don't think the number or the quantity here is the issue. I suppose if we're talking about money, it might, it might play in there. But I think the issue is that God is saying, be generous. Don't be stingy. And I've mentioned this before, but too often sometimes we kind of have this no-fault insurance attitude about relationship repair. And we kind of think that, you know, we should just fix our own car and our partner fixes their car and we just drive away happily. no. If we have broken something, we need to fix it. If we have betrayed something, we need to restore it. That's what the Lord is saying. And don't be stingy about it. Be generous. Let this flow from you. You don't count the cost. You make sure that you restore everything that you've lost. And, and do more than that. Do more than restore everything you've taken away. If you've made your partner feel unloved, you need to make them feel more loved than, you, than they could imagine. If you have broken their trust, you need to be the most trustworthy person they know. You need to be completely generous. Go above and beyond in order to restore the relationship. This is so important. I see this all the time in counseling, where sometimes, you know, a person who has transgressed and they've hurt their partner, and then they're, they're trying to repent, but they're kind of doing the bare minimum. Like the partner is telling them, the, the injured partner says, hey, you know, I'm still worried about this, or this doesn't make me feel very comfortable. And they're kind of dismissing it. Like, well, it's not a big deal. I told you I've repented. I'm not doing that anymore. That's not enough. They've damaged the trust. They've made that person feel unsafe. And to restore it for a fold, 
the party who has injured their spouse needs to be incredibly generous. And if our if our spouse that was injured says, hey, it would really mean a lot to me if you do this. Hey, go do it. Go do it. Make sure they know that whatever you need to know that I am here restoring what I've broken and relying on the merits of Jesus Christ to make up the difference because we can't really restore trust completely ourselves, but we should do everything within our power to restore that trust and then trust that the Lord can make up the difference. And all blessings be to Jesus Christ for that incredible available offer and gift. Going on, verse 43, no, sorry, 45. And if he do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thine heart. And if he do not this, I, the Lord, will avenge thee of thine enemy an hundredfold. Well, that's pretty clear, brothers and sisters. And that's what we need to do. If somebody won't repent and will not restore the relationship, we leave it to the Lord. We don't worry about getting so-called justice in this life. We leave it to the Lord. And the Lord will, will bring that day of accountability. And we'll get to the point, if we do it right, that we'll actually have compassion for the people who have hurt us, because if they don't repent, their case will be very serious. Okay, section 99 is kind of a short one that talks about John Murdoch. Maybe you remember that name, John Murdoch. He and his wife, Julia, had twins the day after Joseph and Emma had twins. And Joseph and Emma's twins died the same day of their birth. I think it was on April 30th. And on May 1st, John and Julia Murdoch had twins also, but Julia Murdoch died in childbirth. So they gave those twins to Joseph and Emma, which must have been an incredible balm on their hearts. And of course, John Murdoch's heart was broken. Here he's being called on a mission. His son, Joseph Murdoch, that was being raised by Emma and Joseph, sadly died of exposure before he was even a year old. And it was because the mobs had come through and left him uncovered or something in cold weather. I forget the details, but Julia did survive. Section 100 is an interesting little section given to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, who have been away from their families for several days and I guess are seeking comfort. So look what the Lord says in verse 1. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my friends Sidney and Joseph, your families are well. They are in mine hands, and I will do with them as seemeth me good, for in me there is all power. Now, I find this fascinating. And I think it's really an important message that we recognize that the Lord will do as seemeth him good. So he does what's best for us, even if it doesn't look like what we want. You know, we pray for the well-being of our loved ones, and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we want it to. We all know people, and maybe we ourselves have prayed for someone really near and dear to us who has not survived an illness or an accident. We know that that the Lord doesn't always grant our righteous petitions. And why? Because he does as seemeth him good. He has a customized plan for each one of his children. And those who are righteous can repose their trust in what the Lord is saying to Joseph and Sidney. Your families are in my hands. Your loved ones are in my hands. And I'll do what is really ultimately going to be best that will provide an optimal opportunity for everyone here to be saved if they choose. So don't second guess me. It may not be exactly what you want it to look like, but it is going to be for the best in the long run. At the end of this section, number 100, Verse 15, therefore, let your hearts be comforted, for all things shall work together for good, for them that walk uprightly and to the sanctification of the church, 
For I will raise up unto myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness. This is the goal. You know, the Lord is giving us an opportunity to be a part of this pure people. That's what the Lord is doing in our world here is to, is to give us an opportunity to be a part of Zion, of the pure people that God is, is chastening and giving opportunities to and, and revealing himself to if we have the desire to receive all of that. And of course, you know, again, it's not for sissies. This is kind of our theme today. It's not for sissies to become purified, to become even as Christ is. This isn't a marvelous opportunity that, that is given to us, but it requires all that we have. It requires our whole heart, our whole mind. Finally, verse 17, and all that call upon the name of the Lord and keep his commandments shall be saved. Even so, amen. Now we use this word salvation and exaltation sometimes interchangeably, and I know I do. Exaltation obviously refers to the highest level of a celestial kingdom. Salvation is for everybody. Everybody is saved other than the sons of perdition who, with their eyes wide open, reject the chance for salvation. So everybody else is saved. And sometimes people have now taken that idea to think that everybody goes to the top level of the celestial kingdom. And that's not true. There are three kingdoms. You know, we receive what we're willing to receive. If we really want that highest level, then we're talking about becoming a pure people, letting the Lord refine us through chastenings, through the trials of life, through whatever experiences that we have that can help us become stronger, that help us become more capable, more more magnified, more able to fulfill the measure of our creation. This is a pretty exciting process. God can make of our lives so much more than we can. Remember that Ezra Taft Benson statement that I've always loved, and it really had a big impact in my life, that if we turn our lives over to God, he can make much more of them than we could. So that's what he's talking about here. Now, section 101, also a powerhouse, lots of really great stuff in this section. I'm just going to start with the beginning again, verses 1 through 5. Verily I say unto you, concerning your brethren who have been afflicted and persecuted and cast out from the land of their inheritance, that's the Missouri Saints, having to leave Jackson County, I, the Lord, have suffered the affliction to come upon them wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. Yet I will own them, and they shall be mine in that day when I come to make up my jewels. I've always loved that phrase, to make up his jewels. Therefore, they must need be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. Again, not for sissies, but let's talk about trials for a moment. I think it's important to to look at where trials come from, and maybe categorize them a little bit. I think that that can be an advantage. Remember back to section 88, when we talked about the laws of the various kingdoms, the celestial laws opposed to terrestrial laws opposed to celestial law. Well, I think that that model can help us also understand different kinds of experiences that we have here in life as in terms of our, our trials. I would suggest that celestial stress or celestial trials come from our own bad choices or our own bad behavior, maybe our rebellious choices. One of my daughters has a sign in her house that says, everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. So it's kind of a reminder for her children that like, guess what? You know, some things are not just sent by God. Some things come to us because of our own 
bad thinking, bad choices, or, or rebellious behavior. So there's a whole level of affliction or trial that comes because of our our bad choices. And we shouldn't be blaming God for that. Sometimes people kind of act like, oh, God's sending me this trial. Well, no, this one you sort of volunteered for. So let's be cautious. The answer to, to eliminating this kind of trouble in our lives is to repent and to be obedient. We can avoid a lot of trouble in our lives if we are obedient. I mentioned that article before about the seven deadly days or a week in the death of America, where it recounted all the people who had been killed in this country in a seven-day period, and the vast majority of them, almost all, in fact, were involved in the commission of a crime. So in other words, we can make our own trouble. I'm not suggesting that anybody deserves to be murdered. I'm saying that, you know, when you play with fire, you get burned. It's not really fair to complain too much if you're putting your head in a lion's mouth and it gets bitten off. So we can avoid all kinds of trouble in our lives if we seek to be obedient to the commandments and avoid the trouble that God is is protecting us from by giving us those guidelines and commandments and standards. Now let's talk about terrestrial stress. I would suggest that terrestrial stress or terrestrial troubles and afflictions are incident to this world. We live on a temporal planet and there are all kinds of problems that come just because of the effect of being human. So, you know, we get older, we get sick sometimes, we get hurt or injured. We have too many good things in our lives and when you're trying to balance work or family and church and family. It can be other good activities, hobbies, recreation, you know, things that are that are positive, but like maybe it's having our kids in too many activities. So we don't really have enough time at home or it's, it's, you know, trying to be perfect at things. So we put too much energy into into things that don't really bring us closer to God or to exaltation. So it's in one way getting caught up in the thick of thin things, or we've heard it put this way too, right about putting things that are vital at the mercy of things that are urgent. I love that one, because there are some things that are vital in life. And that is working out our salvation. But there are a lot of things that are urgent, like paying bills and getting gas in the car and you know taking the kids where they need to go. So there are so many things that can draw our attention. Now, the answer to this one is to prioritize and simplify. God has given us that answer, you know, to put first or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things shall be added unto you. So, you know, if we get the order right, if we get the priorities right, and then we simplify as we've been counseled to do for decades now. And sometimes I think that fell on some deaf ears because we still sometimes make things too complicated. So if we can take that counsel and not get so caught up in the thick of thin things, then we really can reduce terrestrial stress, which is not because of sin, but it's just because of, you know, the world that we live in, and it's very busy, and there are a lot of competing demands, and we can sometimes overdo that. Now, celestial stress is a whole different thing. And he mentions, you know, Abraham and his sacrifice. Clearly, Abraham was not sinning. That's not why he had to make that sacrifice. He was a righteous man. He was a prophet. He wasn't caught up in terrestrial stress either. He wasn't you know, struggling with, you know, just being overwhelmed. What was happening here was an exalting trial. God gave him a celestial opportunity to put it all on the altar, literally, and to say, I will do whatever the Lord wants, at whatever cost. In some ways, I feel like this is a wilderness experience. It's Remember the handcart pioneer that after they had arrived in Utah, you know, years later made this comment about how they found Christ in their extremity. That's celestial 
stress response. It's, you know, you're getting into these difficult things, not of your own making. You're righteous. You're doing the right things. It doesn't mean we're finished or perfect, but the Lord in his effort to continue to help us be refined gives us opportunities to kind of be in a wilderness experience, tough times that we have to endure in faith. And in that endurance, you know, continue to grow, continue to stretch our faith, continue to testify, continue to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, like that is this refining experience. And we shouldn't shirk from it. One of the stories that has touched me so deeply was in Neil Maxwell's biography. And as you may remember, Neil Maxwell died of cancer. When he and his wife received that diagnosis from the doctor, the first thing that Neil Maxwell said was, I just hope that I don't shrink. I mean, I loved Neil Maxwell already. And when I read that story, I just loved him so much even more because I thought, I hope that that's how I could be. I hope that when tough times come, that that's my thought. I just hope that I don't shrink. I hope that I can grow through this and be refined through this so that the Lord will know that I want to be one of his pure people. I want to be part of Zion. Not for sissies. I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a broken record, but that is the truth. Okay, let's let's go on. Verse 7. Some sobering words here. They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers to answer them in the day of their trouble. Well, this is so common, isn't it? I mean, we're human. And sometimes, you know, we're kind of stubborn or we let ourselves get too busy with other things and we don't, we're not quick to obey. We're not quick to listen. I mean, there's a great detail about Abraham. In the scripture, it says that when he got that command from the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac, that he got up early the next morning to go up to the mountain early. I mean, some of us would have slept in that morning, right? But Abraham was quick to obey. He was not slow to hearken. Sometimes we're a little bit slow. And the Lord is saying, if if you're kind of slow about hearkening to me, you know, I may not be that quick to respond to you, not in a vengeful way. God's never like that. But, you know, in just kind of a teaching way, you need to be quick to obey. You need to be oriented toward obedience and wanting to do the will of the Lord because the will of the Lord is what's best for us. Verse 8 going on, in the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble of necessity, they feel after me. Well, this is kind of the same idea as no atheists in foxholes. Maybe you heard that expression, a foxhole being a little, you know, depression in the earth that the soldiers dig out with their helmets. In other words, if, the, if they're on a flat plane and the enemy, you know, has them right in their line of fire, they kind of scrape out a little bit of an indentation in the earth there that they can hide in so that they're below the surface area and not as easy a target. So it has been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, that would make sense, right? And that's exactly what the Lord is saying, that when things were fine in the days of peace, you know, you kind of forgot about me. But when you were in trouble, now you come and ask me. And while that's pretty human again, and we've all noticed that sometimes our prayers are more fervent in times of need, nevertheless, the Lord is saying, hey, you can't just, you know, come when you need something. Like, you need to be constant in your devotion, constant in your worship, constant in your, 
you're seeking revelation and guidance and, and doing the things that, that I desire and inviting me into your life. And if you invite me into your life constantly, then I'll be there when you need me. Again, in the way that I know is best for you, not necessarily in the way that we think is best for us, but we can trust that the Lord will get it right. In verse 9, he says, Nevertheless, my bowels are filled with compassion towards them, and I will not utterly cast them off. And in the day of wrath, I will remember mercy. And then he talks about how, you know, what's going to happen to the persecutors. And in verse 10, the day will come when he's going to let fall the sword of mine indignation in behalf of my people. And even as I have said, it shall come to pass. In other words, you know, there will be a day of accountability. Those people who persecuted maybe seeming to get away with it right now, but don't think anybody gets away with it. God keeps a record. We just read that in section 98, right? That, you know, these three testimonies shall stand against thine enemy if you repent not. The angels do keep a record. However that works, you know, the secret acts of men will be revealed. The public acts of men will be revealed. There will be a day of accountability. Then there are a few verses here that are talking about that in pretty strong terms. Mine indignation is soon to be poured out without measure upon all nations. And this I will do when the cup of their iniquity is full. And in that day, all who are found upon the watchtower, or in other words, all mine Israel shall be saved. So those who are obeying the will of the Lord and trying to, again, build Zion, become a pure people, will be protected and saved in the last day. And they that have been scattered shall be gathered. This is verse 14 now. And all they who have mourned shall be comforted, etc. So this is where, you know, okay, it is going to be the separating of the sheep and the goats and the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will, will receive their reward again, which is time in hell to cover the price of the sins that they didn't repent of. And then they will be resurrected at the appropriate time toward the uh, second resurrection to come forth and receive that which they were willing to receive because they weren't willing to receive all that they could have. So this is sort of military Jesus again. We've talked about that, you know, Christ is going to come and heads are going to roll. Uh, there was a bumper sticker I saw, and this was decades ago, that, that said, you know, Christ is coming and boy is he ticked. I think it actually used another word, which I won't quote, but anyway, that was the gist of it. And again, this isn't because God loses his temper or gets angry or has pettiness about him at all. It's because justice must be served. The blood of the saints will cry unto the heavens for retribution. And that will happen. People do need to be responsible for what they have done. This is the whole point of agency, right? And God says that. He says, in the Garden of Eden, I gave unto man his agency that he could be accountable. So we have our choice so that we can't blame anybody else. We can't in the last day say, well, the devil made me do it, or it was because of my mother or my father or, you know, whatever. These things are, are responsible for my behavior. No, I was given agency and I'm responsible for my choices, for my behavior. In verses 26 through about 34, the Lord reveals here again some information about the millennium that Satan won't have power to tempt anybody. There'll be no sorrow because there is no death. You know, an infant shall not die, his life shall be as the age of a tree, and then he won't die and sleep in the ground or in the earth, but it shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So this is where we get this. It's in section 101 that it reveals some of this detail about the millennium and that the Lord will come and reveal all things. All this is really quite beautiful. And then in verse 36, wherefore, fear not even unto death. For in this world, your joy is not full, but in me, your joy is full. Again, the Lord just doesn't want us too bound up in a fear of death. Remember in Matthew 10, where Christ taught the same lesson, fear not them that can destroy the body. 
Now, it's not that God wants us to be careless about life. Life is a precious gift, and we should be good stewards of it. But on the other hand, to be afraid of death is really a mistaken direction to go. Because everything's in God's hands. That's what he's saying, especially for the righteous. If we're righteous, we're not going to die before the time that it's appointed for us. And we can trust that. You know, we're in a society right now with this whole COVID pandemic and things like that, where some people have really become terrified of death. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean at all to minimize the loss that we feel when somebody that we love passes away. And again, the Lord has said this in scripture in the DNC that we should live together in love in so much that we mourn for the loss of them that die. Of course, we should feel sad when people we love depart from this life, because there's going to be a little while that we have to wait before that glorious reunion. But it's, it's death. It's not the second death, which comes from unrepented sin. So he's saying, just put it in perspective. Take three giant steps back and look again. I can fix that. I have fixed that. Because Christ broke the bands of death and arose from the grave on the third day, we will never stay in the grave. We'll be there for a while unless we die during the millennium. But if we die, we will live again. And our spirits go immediately into another dimension, a spirit world, where we feel the love of God. Brothers and sisters, let's not be terrified about death. Let's be good stewards, but let's not be terrified of death. Let's not terrify our children about death. Again, we want them to be conscientious and good stewards over themselves, but to recognize that the real enemy is sin, and especially unrepented sin. So it should be avoided and then you know, quickly fixed if we do err. And we do err because we're human and all fall short of the glory of God. That's okay. That's okay. There is a way prepared to come back, but we shouldn't play fast and loose with it. We should be obedient, becoming this pure people Zion. In verse 43, the Lord uh, presents this parable that he's giving us. And he talks about how the nobleman has a vineyard and he sends people to the watchman to go out and to build some protections for the vineyard. And that there's a tower that he wants them to build so that they can overlook and protect the vineyard. And it's an interesting parable because the watchmen go out there and start to consult among themselves saying that like, well, it looks like everything's fine. Why should we waste the time and money and, and do that? Everything's okay, which is kind of the all is well in Zion mentality, right? Which we've been warned about in second Nephi 28, that, you know, that that's a real mistake to be saying, oh, it's all fine. We don't have to do this. You know, the prophets see afar off. And that's such a gift to us because they can tell us what to prepare for, what to protect against. And sometimes we may act like, oh, it's not that big a deal. So, you know, the family proclamation comes out in 1995 when it sounded pretty tame. But within a few years, it became a bold document (laughs) given the way the world changed so dramatically in its view of family. So this is this is powerful stuff that the prophets say, and it, and we dismiss it at our own cost. That's again, you know, what's so sad about things like the Jeff Holland talk at BYU, because you know people listen to that and get all offended instead of realizing that these are prophets who can tell us that like these are wise things to do. To defend the faith is a wise thing to do. To not be swayed by worldly philosophies that are mingled with scripture. To not get off balance in terms of thinking that that not offending people is the goal. That's never been the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why so many prophets were stoned and killed. Because guess what? The wicked taketh the truth to be hard. It cutteth them to the very center, as Nephi told his brothers, Laman and Lemuel. And that has never changed. 
People get offended at the truth instead of embracing what could be such a great blessing, the word of the prophets, who see afar off and can tell us when there is, you know, stuff to prepare. Remember, this is another like probably bumper sticker statement, but but you've probably seen it. It said, you know, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Pretty good reminder. The Lord saw afar off. He tells Noah, you need to build this ark because there is something coming that you'll need that ark for. And Noah obeyed, even though he was ridiculed and scoffed and scorned for preparing the way the Lord told him to do. We are often in that same situation. We're being ridiculed and scoffed and scorned and even hated because we are trying to follow the prophet. And you know what? That's okay. We're in fine company. Again, <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been for sissies. And he doesn't want us to remain just victims or to curl up in the corner because people aren't being very happy with us, but to feel increased power of our conviction that if we follow the word of the Lord, given through scripture, through his prophets, we will be protected. We can become a tried, a refined, a chastened, and perfected people in the right day. And at the conclusion of all this, we can be like Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful promise. Anyway, the watchman, you know, get the vineyard gets taken over by bad guys, and then they have to go back and, and clean things up. So, you know, better to build that ark before the rain starts, right? And then when he says that, you know, everything is going to be fine and I will avenge mine enemies, whatever, which again is, has a military Jesus sound to it, doesn't it? But then the servant says to the Lord, when shall these things be? That's verse 59. And in verse 60, he said unto his servant, when I will. Now, that's the faith part, because the Lord doesn't give us the day or the hour. But he says, this is going to happen in the right time and place. You get ready. You become a Zion people, and I'll come when I will, and it will be the right time. And then in verse 62, the servant went straightway and did all things whatsoever his Lord commanded him. I hope that's us. And after many days, all things were fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, there it is. All things will be fulfilled. The Lord makes no promises that are not fulfilled. The, the prophets warn us of things that are to come. We have seen this again and again in scripture. Why do we think it's any different today? Let us be wise. Let us prepare as the prophets ask us to do spiritually, temporally, in all other ways that we might be a part of Zion. Let us endure the chastening without becoming victims. Let's understand that God doesn't want chronic victimization, such a powerful, powerful gift from section 98. But let us not think that the Lord is kidding around. When he speaks, it is fulfilled. May we be on the Lord's side forever. Take care. <laughs>